Hello and welcome to This Just Is. My name is Ian and I'm back. It's been a long time. What did I miss? Uh, I heard something happened at the Capitol and there's a new president. Also, there's a vaccine. I uh, hope that you and your friends and family are hanging in there. This has been the strangest of times for sure. Uh, I know it's been a while since my last podcast and I have no excuse other than life got in the way. Uh, having a full-time job, being a father and a husband. I had some surgery as well towards the end of the year and that surely can throw a wrench into things. But the important thing is my plan is to keep going. I'm looking at adding a producer to help me manage the process of having a podcast so I don't have to go at it all alone. And my hope is that it will add some consistency and an overall better final result for people that may want to listen. Uh, moving on, my guest today is the incredible Dr. Jamie Rutland. Yes, we're going to talk to another doctor, and I think you know why. Dr. Jamie is a pulmonologist whose specialty is autoimmune diseases of the lung, and I think you could see why he's an important person to speak to uh, with during these COVID times. Dr. Jamie is a national spokesman for the American Lung Association uh, and knows more about how COVID uh, interacts with the body than pretty much anyone. He runs his own practice here in Southern California called West Coast Lung and is a graduate of the University of Iowa School of Medicine. Go Hawkeyes for all you Big Ten people out there. Those are just a few of his accolades. I could very well go on. Dr. Jamie is an incredible communicator, and I encourage anyone and everyone to follow him on Instagram at Dr. J. Rutland. He does incredibly informative, no-nonsense posts and live streams during all things COVID and is an incredible resource to the world during these times. Uh, we had a great conversation. I thought I had a decent handle on what was going on with regards to how the virus affected people, as well as the vaccine itself. And Dr. Jamie dropped some serious knowledge on me, and I think he will do the same for you. So here he is, without further ado, the vital and informative Dr. Jamie Rutland. Well, thanks for joining me. Should I call you Dr. Jamie? Is that good? Does that work? <laughs> Whatever you want, it's fine. Okay, I'm going to call you Dr. Jamie the whole time. Um, we talked a little bit about your background, but I just wanted to start by just discussing what your background is, what made you want to be a, a, a doctor, what drew you to be a pulmonologist, and and um, and what you're up to now. And then I kind of wanted to dive into COVID vaccine and all sorts of other things. Sure, no problem. You know, when I was in uh, fifth grade, my, I went to Catholic school my whole life, like kindergarten to 12th grade. Sister Anne asked us to write down two short-term goals, two long-term goals, and she said, you know, make them somewhat realistic. So, of course, I wrote down, you know, get straight A's on the next test, score 20 points in my next, ba in my next basketball game, and then I wrote down, get a basketball scholarship to North Carolina or Georgetown and go to the NBA or go to medical school and become a doctor. So I was like 10 years old. So I get home from school, and my grandparents always pick me up from school went to their house. I gave them the goals and my grandfather like slapped it on the refrigerator and said, you know, okay, you know, N word. That's how he always tell you to talk to me. <laughs> like you better like do it. So it was always on his fridge. And then, you know, you go through school, you go through college and I wasn't like the best student in the beginning of college. Right. I was just mm -hmm. like, whatever. I didn't really care. And then like my third year of college, I decided to start studying hard and I did. And then I don't know. I applied to med school and got in. <laughs> so you did not you did not go play at North Carolina or Georgetown or Georgetown. Okay. <laughs> I just want to make sure everyone's clear that you ended up becoming a doctor and not an NBA star. Correct. Um, and um, and you so you went you went to University of Iowa, right? 
the University of Iowa for medical school. I went to UC yeah, Davis okay. for college. Yeah. And so you moved out here and you're living in Southern California, which is obviously currently considered the hotspot of COVID in the universe. Although I don't know if someone else has taken our crown, but I'm very proud to be part of a, you know, a citizen in a state that that's number one. But I just wanted to speak generally with you about your experience with COVID, how it's evolved for you as a pulmonologist and a doctor, what you saw in the beginning or what you thought was going on in the beginning versus what's going on now, how your knowledge has shifted or how your experience has shifted based on your exposure to patients and more information about the virus. You know, so it's interesting because for me, and again, it's not for everybody. So like everybody is posting about COVID and writing about COVID, whether mm-hmm. like all kinds of physicians. And I got to be honest, like this is an illness that like I am very familiar with just because of the way in which I practice medicine. Now, the way in which I practice medicine, my specialty was autoimmune lung disease. So I was used to looking at CT scans, looking at images, understanding immunology, the immune system, the way it communicates, the way it works. And so when I first started looking at SARS-CoV-2 infection, which is the virus that causes COVID-19, the disease, I, I thought to myself, I was like, you know, this doesn't look to be like an infection. It looks to be more like an interstitial lung disease. So it looked to be something that I deal with on a daily basis, right? And I choose to deal with it because most pulmonologists, they don't really want to deal with autoimmune lung disease. It's usually left for the universities to deal with, so on and so forth, but I loved it. So when I looked at it, I was kind of like, huh. So then last March, February, I just read and read and read and read and read and read and and just continued to do that. Like everything from the translational research to the clinical stuff, all the cellular stuff, like everything. And so I began to develop an understanding of it Um, and not an understanding of it being arrogant and saying, oh, I know what it is. I know what to do about it, but just more of like the pathophysiology of it, Um, how it was working, what it was leading to. And I started to develop like these ideas of what I think we should be doing, which is kind of now where we're going, which is like calming down the immune system, because really it's COVID-19 is secondary to the presence of the virus. The immune system has this overreaction to its presence. And so all of the white blood cells tend to collect and conglomerate in the airways um, and in the lungs. And so, you know, by that matter, you can see that as a result of the presence of this virus and no one doing anything about it, meaning nobody was wearing a mask, nobody was um, participating in social distancing, you knew that it because the virus can spread like wildfire, you knew that the disease was going to spread like wildfire. And so everything that's going on now, to be completely honest with you, I expected. And it's sucks because I have been in contact with people. I put tubes in their chest. I put tubes in their mouth. Um, I've seen them outpatient. I've seen them inpatient on the floor. And honestly, all I do is wear an N95 when I walk in the room and wear a mask, you know, in very public places. And I'm not going to sit here and say I've been fine, but I mean, for the most part, I've been okay. And so I do think that social distancing and masking provides us some protection. Um, But I got to be honest, like I understand the economy. I understand that 
businesses need to be open. I get that. I mean, and I think there's a very practical way of, of doing both. I don't think you have to like cut off everything mm-hmm. to be a success. And I think that's what people are lashing out at and being mad at, I guess. Yeah, not to, not to get into the political part of this too much, but do you feel that if it was advised very early on by the previous administration that, look, we're going to keep mostly everything open, but just make sure that you wear a mask and you social distance and, you know, we'll have outdoor dining and all that sort of thing. We wouldn't be in the position we are. We wouldn't have as many people as upset because they can't keep their businesses open, et cetera. The, and the infection rate would also be less because you obviously think that masks are good at intervention. They might not be a catch-all, but they're good at intervention that we probably wouldn't be in the space we're in maybe, you know, sociopolitically, but also just with the virus being as rampant as it is. I mean, I think so. I mean, I think people are decent, Mm -hmm. but you know, then again, we had a lot of people who were very um, outspoken about shutting down. But if you notice the people who were outspoken about shutting down are also the people that didn't have to worry about it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I don't know. I just feel like you have to have a sense of compassion and empathy for other people right and it's um in the beginning i was kind of like yeah go ahead and shut down right now let's do it for a month let's be really strict about it and then start opening back up and and doing what you can i understand shutting down and i and i'm with it because you know you wanted to slow down rates of infection and slow down you wanted to help the hospitals you wanted to help us we didn't get overwhelmed um i don't know man i mean i just i'm you know, I, I, I just think that, yes, there was a better way of doing it. If the previous administration had admitted that it was a thing, you know, and that we exercised some social distancing in the very beginning and didn't kind of just toss it by the wayside, maybe we'd be in a better position. But I also fully understand that when you look at the history of the world mm-hmm. and you hear about civilizations disappearing, like, what do people think happened? <laughs> Did they think like aliens came and picked them up? Mm-hmm. No, th- this is what happened. Like disease happened. And so I think this is very common. It's just, we, we think of, I, I feel like we think of life in sort of 70 year cycles and we think, oh, this is such a new thing. It's never happened. And then you just look at pictures from a hundred years ago and there's anti-maskers and people telling you to wear a mask for the Spanish flu. So that's something that I've looked at and going, okay, this is just a cycle. It just happens. Nature rears its head and we have to adapt and those who don't adapt get sick and and unfortunately can get very sick and pass away um and those that do move on with the knowledge and understanding that uh these things can occur i just think that we were kind of caught flat-footed and i think that that that's the bigger issue for me is it wasn't like wasn't like there weren't people who were saying this thing's coming let's be prepared it's just we thought nah not us couldn't happen to us and it did um so i think you're you're spot on with that assessment I, yeah, I, I mean, also, I think yeah, go ahead. There, you know, I, I read this quote the other day. There were, and the quote I thought was interesting. It's, it said, There are only two ways to live your life. One is though, one is as though nothing is a miracle, the other is though everything is. Mm-hmm. And so, society has been living as if nothing is a miracle, like all of this is supposed to happen, right? Like this order and everything is blah, 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 blah. Like this is how it is. you do this, you get this, you get that, blah, 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 no interruptions, nothing. But like, I'm like, I like at life and I'm like, man, like, this is amazing. Like the fact that we're able to get up and walk around and do all this, like, I understand that things happen. Right. And 
I don't know. I mean, I just, I, I wasn't surprised. <laughs> yeah. Well, I thought you also as a doctor, you, this is, you know, you go, yeah, okay. This is, this is what happens. This is, this is a virus and this is disease. And this is what I went to school for. Right. Um, so I think most doctors at most, or most people who are level-headed <laughs> in their approach probably have the same mentality that you did, where it was like, yeah, of course, but now we have to deal yeah. with it. So let's do that. I think, you know, my dad, my, my father is a doctor and he always said that, um, doctors are, people look at doctors in a certain way, but all I am and all, all most doctors are, are incredibly highly skilled technicians. And that we have a right. keen understanding of a particular type of medicine. We're presented with issues and problems and our job is to solve them with whatever knowledge we have, whatever medicine is available. And I think that when you start looking at doctors as problem solvers and technicians, it sort of demystifies you know, this, this knowledge base that doctors has like, no, they're just incredibly informed, knowledgeable technicians that are looking to solve problems and help people through, through technology and through medicine and through treatment. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, agree. I a hundred percent agree. Although what's interesting is nowadays with social media and everybody, <laughs> I was going to talk, I wanted to talk to you about this. So you could, you, let's, let's talk about this. Uh, because yeah. I know we mentioned this a little when we just talked, we talked briefly on the phone, but I have written down here social media because you're someone that's on social media and you you do these incredibly informative you know long form discussions about you know kind of vamping about the, the virus and, and medicine but i'd love to hear what your opinion is on the sort of other end of things too but you being someone that's knowledgeable about this in a very specific way and then the other side of it is people presenting information via social media to a large audience that might not be accurate or right I mean, it's interesting because for me, this is like the first time where, again, for me, it's a timing thing, right? Like, honestly, like this disease, I just know really well, just because of this is all I've studied, right? I mean, this is like my specialty is this. And so it's interesting hearing people, random people, civilians, who read, who read three paragraphs and they think that they're up to speed. And it's like, you're not. Mm -hmm. And it's it, sometimes it's frustrating, but I recognize that it's my duty to try to get people to where I am in a matter of moments, um, even though I've spent 20 years getting to where I am. Right. And I think that's part of the part of the struggle. And even my colleagues, like I've got friends that they don't they're not lung doctors. They're not there. Yeah, they went to medical school. Yeah, you know, whatever. But and they post a lot about it. And it's like you know, they're asking questions, blah, blah, blah. And so you, you get these posts that make sense, but there's just this, there's this extra bit of umph you can, you can put into it when you are within this specialty. And I, I don't know if that's bad or good. I don't know if that's what's allowing other people to have these comments and form these opinions based on the four paragraphs that they've read. But I do think that that leads to a lot of misinformation and a lot of uh, social anxiety, so to speak. Yeah. Oh, I, it's also interesting is there's people that are like online, just on YouTube, I just see stuff pop into my algorithm. Like if I'm looking at stuff about nutrition or something, even just online, just Google searching, and then I go on YouTube and I'm fed some videos from some nutritionist and I look at their credentials and they're not even really a nutritionist. Right. I think that's like part of it is because, you know, they have a well-produced 
slick looking video. And even on social media, you can make it look pretty nice. And people go, oh, they're professional. I should listen to what they have to say. And it doesn't mean that someone who's not quote unquote licensed, you know, doesn't have a, a large knowledge base, but there is something to going to school for years and years and understanding the sort of deep atomic level of nuclear level of understanding of how nutrition works or disease works versus someone who doesn't have that. It doesn't mean they can't be knowledgeable and they can't help you, but it's just good for, I think, the viewer or the consumer to have an understanding. Okay, this person isn't really a nutritionist. They might have some information that might be useful to me, but ultimately I need to, I need to be the one to make the determination as to whether I feel it's good information or not. And that's really hard for many people. And I think that to me is the problem with social media is that, you know, if it's a doctor, you go, it's a doctor. Okay. I'll do that thing they told me to do. And it's like, maybe it's not the best thing for you to do. Yeah. You know, there's this sense of awareness that gets lost in social media. And I think for me, one of the, one of the skills that I have is I'm just, I'm aware of what I'm good at, what I'm not good at. I'm aware of where I can lend an opinion and offer a professional one. And I'm aware of when I can't. And I stay in my lane, so to speak. I try not to, an example would be this. Chadwick Boseman, right? The Black Panther, died of colon cancer, right? And what you saw on social media was everybody talking about colon cancer, blah, blah, blah. I didn't because that's just not my field. Like I felt bad and I felt sorry and it sucks for him to die of colon cancer. And yeah, everybody should get screened. But like, I wasn't going to go into the science of colon cancer because to be honest with you, that's not my field. Right. And even right now I'm struggling because and everybody knows like my wife has breast cancer, had breast cancer and she just had a big surgery. Um, And I've read all kinds of things about breast cancer and what it is. And, you know, I haven't posted anything because like, it's not, you know, on, on the science of it, because it's not really, it's not really my lane. You know, I want to do a YouTube on it this week and I'll talk about it a little bit, but like, I don't know. It's just, you know, it's just really, really awareness is, is, is lost. And I, I feel like society would be, would function better if people were aware of where their deficiencies were and they could go and ask people for help and everybody could work together. Like if I have a GI issue or if I, I was in clinic the other day and, and I saw a, the plastic surgeon who actually worked on my wife. Um, I saw his wife and she had a female issue. She just wanted to be seen by a physician. I said, come on by. And I knew what tests to order, but I didn't know exactly what to do. I immediately FaceTimed my friend who is a, who is a specialist in that particular area. She offered advice and we moved on. Like, I just feel like that is how society should function. It shouldn't be, I'm going to read something that I know absolutely zero about, form an opinion, and then go spread my opinion like it's a fact. Like, that's not, that's not what we should be doing. I, yeah. I just, I don't know. It just and feels... that's obviously led to a lot of issues, not only in the medical community, but in the citizen community as well, of people being like, you know, when we, and, and I think this is a good segue um, to the vaccine itself. And people who are um, anti-vax, especially with this new vaccine that's come out rather quickly. I mean, I think there is an understanding that this is a vaccine that was made relatively quickly. Um, Mm, I don't know if you agree with that. It wasn't? Okay. Here's why. Okay. In 2003, there was an outbreak of SARS-CoV-1 in China. 
mm-hmm. SARS-CoV-1, which is another virus that looks 90% like SARS-CoV-2. When I say that, what I mean is when you look at the structure of any virus, they have a certain foundation. So if you were to draw a circle on a piece of paper, the uh, coronaviruses all look the same. You draw a circle, they all have four uh, structural proteins, nucleocapsid, spike, envelope, membranous. And then they have eight RNA segments in their cell nucleus on the inside um, of the virus. Like that, that's what they have, right? That's how they're structured. The way that a protein is structured in general is the building blocks of a protein are amino acids, right? So they're like the bricks. So this amino acid, that amino acid, you got arginine, valine, whatever, it doesn't matter. They're amino acids built on top of one another. And when viruses that are the same, like SARS-CoV-1 and SARS-CoV-2, when they look different, it's just because there's a few amino acids that are a little bit different, but the proteins are the same, okay? The functionality is the same. Functionality is the same. We all knew in 2003 that the spike protein was what caused the virus's virulence. In other words, that's what led to the severity of disease. The spike protein would bind to our cells, so we knew it. We had it sequenced. We had made three vaccines for SARS-CoV-1 already by 2005, already done, okay? So we knew the structure. We knew the sequence of all the proteins. That is like 90% of creating a vaccine. Mm -hmm. So when SARS-CoV-2 came out, they were able to immediately start clinical trials. They made the vaccine within like a month because they knew the sequence of everything and it was done. For me, Mm -hmm. it wasn't quick. That's Mm -hmm. 20 years, 2003, 2020. That's like 18 years, 17 years. So, but for people that don't know that exactly yes look yeah and that's the problem yeah. that's the no, awareness yeah. factor well there's also no there's not that information isn't widely shared like what you just no. said isn't something like that i've ever heard and i've also heard from other physicians again not people that are specialized in your field that yeah this this vaccine is quick it came out really quickly so to hear you say that is like, okay, well then everyone has this game of telephone wrong. Because if you're saying that this thing, that there was a vaccine that was created two or three years after an original virus showed up that looked very similar to this one, then yeah, the R&D has been going on for almost 20 years. So that is not quick. The R&D has been going on since 1990. Yeah. And the reason why it wasn't spread was because, and this sucks, mm-hmm. it was created by a woman. Oh, Her name geez. was Catalin. Her name was Catalin. And she's from like Eastern Europe. Um, And they didn't make mRNA vaccines for SARS-CoV-1. They made other types of vaccines. Doesn't matter though. Mm -hmm. The mRNA technology makes perfect sense. You can sequence a protein and you get your body to make the protein, recognize that it's foreign and then create an immune response. Like that's, it's a cool ass like technique. Um, And they've made mRNA vaccines before but none of them had been approved in the past. They didn't have to, probably because the diseases didn't affect the majority, right? We're talking like Ebola, dengue, all those types of viruses that cause issues in Africa. So um, that's what we're dealing with. And again, like most physicians don't know that. I posted that on social media maybe, I don't know, four months ago or something, three Mm -hmm. months ago. And people were like, I posted this, like a picture of a paper. And I was like, oh, by the way, this paper was written in 2003. And they were like, and everybody was like, oh. And I was like, yeah, 
<laughs> so this is not this is not new yeah right this isn't a new thing um and i think it's important for people to realize that because when you're educating people people are going to be scared of of what's new although if i told everybody that they would lose 800 pounds and they would have a six pack they would take whatever thing was made up yesterday in a heartbeat mm -hmm. but like when you're educating people you have to be able to do it right and I think yeah, when you look sure. at mainstream media and even social media for that matter, the fact of the matter is, is that nobody said any of that. Everybody yes. thought this coronavirus was new. There's seven coronaviruses that people are infected with. Three of them are severe, SARS-CoV-1, SARS-CoV-2, MERS-CoV. Four of them, right? Um, NL63, OC43, 229E, and HKU1 are common coronaviruses that cause common cold, in children and adults every winter. And people just don't realize that this is a common virus. And in fact, in like 2005 or six, the Journal of Infectious Disease wrote that the virus that's gonna cause the next pandemic is coronavirus. So we already knew this shit was gonna happen. And nobody talks about that. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem that I have with this whole thing. Yeah, is, is that that's one of the major well, issues. That's that's the other thing is that misinformation, right? Because I, you know, I um, wrongly considered myself someone who was who was relatively informed. Uh, and I appreciate you informing me. Um, but, you know, people just look at that and go, there's no way I'm going to take I'm going to take this, this vaccine. I mean, I, I, I don't I'm, I'm, I plan on getting it when I can, because I understand that vaccination works. And there's a reason why we're able to have an abundant society is because of vaccines we don't have to worry about children getting polio or mm -hmm. or any or horrible Correct. diseases because of the miracles of vaccine they've been right. one of the greatest uh, achievements in in, in human uh, history in medicine human history really to manipulate that i mean if you look at deep into human history there were these massive die-offs of people uh and people were affected by these viruses for their entire life or killed at a young age or 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 worse so um or had to live with afflictions that they just couldn't you know were very hard to deal with. So I understand that. And I do think that, you know, taking the vaccine is a responsible thing to do, regardless of what conspiracy theorists say. But I think for the, all the reasons that you just explained, there's a disconnect between how information is presented to public in mass uh, and the entertainment factor of it. It's not, it, it's more, um, it's more beneficial for news agencies and for people on social media to talk about how quick the vaccine came out and that it's dangerous and that people get sore arms and they feel sick after it than it is about, hey, that's the nature of vaccine. Uh, sometimes people get vaccines and you can get a vaccine injury. It's very rare, but it happens. Um, and there's a reality to that. And, and I think that instead of just being honest and upfront about the nature of how this whole thing works, there's this sort of, um, obfuscation of the truth and, and, and information delivered in half truths and not, uh, not totally clear. So I think it's really good that you're going on social media and being like, Hey, this is not the case. Look, I'm a specialist in this particular field. And this has been going on for almost two decades. So I think that that's a, that's a big problem. And I'm glad that you're trying to address it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is, it is a huge problem, but I, you know, and I didn't really understand the media and all of this until I got into more production, right? And so now mm -hmm. I get sensationalizing comments and sensationalizing headlines, right? Like even yeah. talking about yeah. the variants right now, like, ooh, the variant may not be 
you know, may not be responsive to the vaccine. The vaccine may not work against the variant. Why get the vaccine? And I'm kind of like, are we forgetting that the vaccine was created while variants were around? Variants didn't pop up yesterday. So like, of course it's effective. Of course it's, unless you're counting on the people that got all these people that were given the vaccine, the people that were uh, not given the vaccine in these trials, unless you're saying that they were never exposed to a variant, which is going to be very tough to argue considering how common they are. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's just amazing to me that practicality sometimes gets lost in all of this. Yeah. Um, and I, I wanted to talk more about the sensationalism of the entire, uh, you know, the history of, of, uh, of the virus and how it's been relayed to the public and the percent, the, the death, uh, the rate, you know, percentage of death in infection. Um, how, what are, do you know what the current numbers are as reported by the CDC as to how, you know, what the percentage of people that get the virus actually perish or, or is that information murky? The information is not murky. I think right now what we're saying is it looks to be like around 2%. Let me see, at least of all the positives that we have in the United States. Let me see. But there's probably a lot, it's probably a lot lower just because you have a lot of people who have, um, I'm going to look right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have a lot of people who have um, who have the virus that don't know they have it. So let me see here. Where are we at? So we've got 103 million global cases and 2 million global deaths. So what is that? That is 2%, right? Am I tripping? Yeah, a little under. Um, I wanted to chat about vaccine distribution mm. and the uh what you see the main issues being uh in the united states and when do you think most people will be able to get vaccinated uh if they choose to um so vaccine distribution is interesting i think actually that we're doing probably about as good of a job as we can because what we wanted to do was we wanted to vaccinate healthcare workers first obvious then you want to vaccinate people who are at risk, which again, I would just say anybody old is at risk. Um, and then you want to, ex- and then you want to vaccinate people who are caring for people who are at risk, which I understand. Um, but then I think you just vaccinate people who want to be vaccinated. So I'm not going to lie. Like the other day I got a call from one of the clinics that I used to work for and they said, Hey, we have some doses of vaccine. Do you want to bring your wife? So I brought my wife and I got her vaccinated. I told two of my friends, I was like, hey, they're vaccinated. They got some extras. My neighbors that I hang out with all the time, they went and they got vaccinated. I didn't feel bad about it. And the reason I didn't feel bad about it is because the goal is to vaccinate as many people that want to be vaccinated. That's the goal. Um, I think that it's interesting how people were first saying the vaccine is too quick. And now they're saying, well, now you're not distributing it fast enough. Again, it's just like... (laughs) shut up. Like, you know, it's just kind of like, we're doing what we can. The only issue that I might have with it is I just want to see vaccines being distributed in black neighborhoods and white neighborhoods, right? I want to see vaccines being distributed in Mexican neighborhoods. I want to see vaccines being distributed in areas where people do not have access uh, to healthcare, like other people do. And again, I understand that like, only 30%, 36%, I think, of my population, Black people, are getting the vaccine. 
it's my job to educate them and I'm doing that and I will do that. Um, and, um, uh, but I still think that it should be offered in these areas. Now I have heard of some, I heard of a vaccine clinic today in Inglewood, which is a predominantly black neighborhood. My uncle's going to get the vaccine today in Inglewood. Um, so I, I am happy with the distribution. What I'm not happy with is signing up to go get it. Like, I really think it should be uh, easy. I don't think it should be difficult, right? I mean, I've got, you know, I've got people calling me every day. Like, it really should be, this should be one of the easiest things on the planet, right? You, you want the vaccine, you just go get it, right? Um, and then the protesters that I heard at Dodger Stadium over the weekend. Yeah. yeah. Like, I mean, that's ridiculous. Like, you don't, if you don't want to do it, don't do it, right? The way the immune system works, I'm, people are going to have reactions. It's a natural thing. Yeah. Just because you have reaction doesn't mean that the vaccine shouldn't be given, right? Just because bad things happen doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. There are people that die in car accidents every single day. I'm going to go drive to work in a minute. Like, and so, you know, it, it, there's just all these things that people just don't accept with medicine that they accept with society. I mean, people are out there getting drunk. People are out there doing drugs. People are out there. And I'm not saying go and do those things. I'm just simply saying that it's funny what's accepted, right? Life-saving vaccine being given to people going to protest and shut down a vaccine clinic, right? People going out there and drinking at a bar or doing drugs, like nobody's shutting down anything. Like, it's just, it's just funny to me. I just, well, it's the same, you know, you hear people, there's no way that I'm going to take this vaccine and they're, you know, eating fast food three times a day and drinking Mountain Dew. And it's like, well, it's probably worse what you're doing than getting jabbed with right. a vaccine <laughs> once, right. you know, you'll get sick or you, it'll be sore. Or you won't feel good for two or three days, but then you have immunity and you can go about living your life and, and, uh, and making money and doing the things you need to do. So it is a very strange uh, human condition to see other people doing things that don't necessarily harm you, but you don't like them doing those things. And so you go and you try to prevent them there. You know, it's, it's, it's very odd to me that these people seem to be about freedom and about liberty. But then when someone else decides that they want to do something of their own volition within their own liberties, it's a big problem for them. Uh, and that's, that's the issue I think with the, with the anti-vax movement is, you know, get educated vaccines are bad. It's like, I don't really believe you. I'm going to take vaccines and I don't need to be proselytized to that. They're bad. It's just, if you don't like vaccines, don't like vaccines, you know, that that's fine. Go for That's it. Go it. Live your life your, your way uh, or, or don't live your life <laughs> because it could potentially be harmful. Right. Um, that, that's it. Yeah. That's it. It's that simple. Yeah. Um, I wanted to touch more on uh, what you mentioned about vaccines not being distributed as readily or the percentages of, of people in minority communities not getting the vaccine. Um, is that a product of simply not getting the right information to those communities or is it a product of them not having access to, you know, they're kind of living in like medical care deserts. Um, is there a combination of those things? What do you think is the main cause of, of, of that reason? Yeah, that's very difficult to discuss. And the reason I say that is just because my community is very, again, we've been oppressed. We've been, um, you know, racism, healthcare disparity exists. Like, I don't even like to have the argument of whether or not they exist. It exists. Yes. Um, yeah. And depending on your exposure to healthcare, you're going to have a lack of trust in healthcare in general. The one thing I would remind my community is 
generally speaking, the things that have happened aren't usually because we're delivering healthcare. It's usually because we're not delivering healthcare. So I think you have to look at this situation differently. I mean, we're actually trying to give you the vaccine. I took the vaccine. You know, my mom took the vaccine. Um, it's not like Tuskegee where we didn't <laughs> give penicillin for syphilis, which I completely understand where that distrust comes in, right? I, I completely get it. And I've had this discussion many times, but I really feel like it's a lack of access to healthcare, a lack of educating in that area um, in general. And again, you have to see the benefits of getting healthcare. If you don't, then you're not gonna see it, right? Um, and I think it's hard in that situation. But, you know, me being on Clubhouse with some of my friends and all these other social media apps, I've had a lot of people say, you know what, without you, I wouldn't have gotten the vaccine. Now I'm going to get it. So, you know, I know I'm doing something, um, but I also don't promise that nothing's going to happen to them. I can't sit there and say that, like, hey, everything's going to be fine and you're not going to have a reaction. People are going to have reactions. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think that, you know, it's, it's just a sticky, tricky situation. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that your wife has breast cancer and is recovering from surgery. I wanted to talk about what it's like for someone like you who works in medicine to have the person that's the most important to you, you know, be diagnosed with that and what, what that's been as an emotional process for you. Because I, I mean, I couldn't even, it's not, it's not something you ever want to imagine, but when it happens and it presents itself, like, what was that? What was that like for you? And how has it been since? Yeah, you know, not very many people ask me, like, how are you? Mm -hmm. Like, that's kind of always, what I'm asking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, yeah it, it's always like, you know, how's your wife? What's the prognosis? Blah, blah. How are the kids? which I get, you know, it's like when you're a dad and again, we, you know, my wife and I, we just started this practice and we're kind of building it up and all of that. And, you know, I've got 50, 50, where I do 50% this kind of stuff and 50% clinical stuff. Um, then I still do the ICU. And again, when you, at least for me, whenever you're faced with adversity and like my wife getting diagnosed with breast cancer was like a huge kind of like, holy shit moment, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and then me being a physician and understanding the consequences of having a breast cancer, the severe consequences, um, it's scary because that's what you think about as a pulmonary critical care physician, seeing all those people with breast cancer in the ICU that's metastasized and gone all over their body. Um, but then you also think about, okay, wait, I have access. Her nodule or her mass was like seven millimeters. Um, and we did the thing where we just took them both out and they're going to do the implant thing just so we don't have to worry about it again. Right. Um, I don't even know how to say it. Like it, I don't even think that I've really gone through the emotional toll of it. Mm -hmm. I've just kind of accepted it, continue to step forward, make sure she has the best care, make sure she's feeling okay. Make sure the kid's okay. Make sure there's still food on the table. Make sure we can still pay our mortgage. Make sure we can still pay for the cars. Mm -hmm. Make sure we can still, you know, like do the things you got to do to live that like, I haven't really spent a lot of time like thinking about how I'm doing emotionally. You just kind of do things. 
right? Yeah. I always think of that line from The Dark Knight when Joker's in the um, hospital room with Harvey Dent. And he's like, what did he say? He's like, you know, I don't even know what I'm doing. I'm just, I just do things. You know, I'm like a dog chasing cars. You know, I, I wouldn't know what to do. I wouldn't know what to do if I caught one. Like, you know, I'm just, yeah. I'm like that. I just kind of just do it. You know, I'm just like, it just kind of happens. And I can't really, um, I don't know. I, I, I can't really explain how I'm doing. I'm just doing. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that, um, all the things that you have to do in order to keep your family stable are the things that kind of sit on top of the emotional part of what you know you're going to have to reckon with at some point. It's coming. You're going to have to. Right. And as another human, my hope is that it's something that you're able to reckon with, not easily, but uh, in a way that, that feels, uh, feels right to you and, and doesn't, uh, doesn't rear its head in, in a way that, that, that can become, you know, a problem. And I know that people that are very high functioning and very accomplished like yourself are, are probably in very similar situations where you have all these things going on. You have all these responsibilities, something pops up in your life and then you go, Oh, wow. Holy shit. Okay. Well, I just need to march forward and keep doing this thing, but you're not necessarily. And, and it's, it's also, um, there's a lot of self-awareness and a lot of humility for you to admit, I don't know how I'm doing because I haven't actually been able to stop for a second to sit with it. And that's difficult to do. It's hard to sit with things and absorb them and feel pain or feel fear because it's uncomfortable, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. I also think when God wants you to grow, he makes you uncomfortable. There was like a you know, six yeah. minute period when I found out she had cancer because she had the biopsy and then I actually went into her chart and looked at it and had to tell her, mm -hmm. um, which was really strange. Mm -hmm. And I was a little emotional there, but I couldn't be that emotional because, you know, she was emotional. And then I went over to my neighbor's house and there was like a five minute period. And I was just like, you know, it's cancer. And I just kind of started crying. And then I was like, all right, enough. Like, you got to deal with this. You got to go through it because your wife's got to go through it. Mm -hmm. um, and you just, you know, I don't know. You just kind of do it. Yeah. Where are you, by the way? I see all these trees back there. Are you in Big Bear or something? <laughs> I'm in Lake Arrowhead. Yeah. And there's about five feet of snow on the ground. I came up here to, re to record with you and to do a bunch of stuff at the, at the house. And uh, we live off of an access road and it was just snowed over. So I was shoveling all day yesterday trying to get- I thought you guys lived in LA. You guys live in Lake Arrowhead? No, we have a home in Lake Arrowhead. We live in, uh, we actually live in Ventura County. Okay. Yeah but I don't want to give, give my address for all the throngs of fans to come and stalk me, you know, all <laughs> 10 of them. Um, well, uh, this has been incredibly informative and I really, really appreciate you taking the time. I know you're busy. I know you've got a lot going on in your life. You've got patients, you've got a family. Um, but this is, this is the type of information that I think people need to know. And um, I'm so happy that uh, you decided to chat with me. So thank you so much. Hey, thanks for having me. Um... I really appreciate it. And, you know, as I always say, just be better today when compared to yesterday. Yeah, it's a hard thing to do in practice, but I appreciate you uh, giving everyone that encouragement. I agree. Thanks a lot. I appreciate Thanks, it. Man. Thanks, Talk Ian. to you soon. All right, take care. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Jamie. Once again, you can follow him on Instagram at Dr. J. Rutland. And a quick Google search will give you a window into all the things he's doing and has done. 
It's very impressive, and his knowledge is a gift for all of us. Uh, I'll hopefully be back sooner rather than later with a new episode. I remind you to take a few deep breaths and find some time for you as best you can. It is helpful. Be well, and I'll check in with you soon. This just is.